Well, good morning. Thanks, Ed, and uh, thanks, Alan. Alan is one of my 12 bosses, so I hope that I do well this morning. And if not, uh, if any of you need an employee, I may be free after today. No, it's really good to have Alan as part of our board of directors. And Ed, of course, that many of you know so well, been a friend and mentor of mine for years and now serving as part of our mission here in the Western region. And I'm always glad to be part of a a church uh, and a minister in a church that has such a heart for the world like I hear that so many of you have with the numbers of you that have served in places like uh, the Dominican Republic and a team getting ready to go to Cambodia and the report we just heard from Mexico and I'm sure if we took time uh, today I could hear about so many more places where God is uh, causing you to have a vision for his glory and for his uh, church being spread throughout the globe. And uh, this morning, I hope to feed that flame just a little bit more as we share together, and especially as we focus on this interesting word, uh, relentless. And in fact, this morning, we're going to center all of our thoughts around what it means to be relentless. When I, when I hear the word relentless, the kinds of thoughts that come to my mind, like passion and, and focus and drive and perseverance, relentless, being relentless about something. Now, relentless isn't just a word for the church or for followers of Jesus Christ. All of you know that well. Uh, relentless, uh, they tell us now, is the name of a book by a best-selling author, Dean Koontz. I haven't read it yet. Maybe some of you have. But whatever the story is, he thought relentless was a good label for it. Or, or uh, the Coca-Cola bottling company uh, there in the, in the United Kingdom. They were looking for a name to put for their new energy drink. And uh, what do they call that Red Bull here? Well, uh, this one called Relentless has twice the kick of a can of Red Bull. So that's pretty powerful stuff. I guess you become relentless if you drink enough of this. Relentless is the name of at least 15 rock albums, four books, four movies, and thousands of us use that word relentless every day. What does relentless really mean? If we look at uh, Webster's in the dictionary, uh, it would say it this way, showing or promising no abatement of severity and intensity and strength or pace. And men and women, I, I can think of no better term, no better label to put on a follower of Jesus Christ than to say he was relentless. He was relentless in his pursuit of God. Or she was relentless in her commitment to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations. This morning I have the privilege of telling you the story of a friend of mine who I can think of no better label to put on his life than to say he was relentless. It's a story of Amanda who was born in Africa. His name is Adaje Samuel. Born in 1962 in a small village in southern Chad, right on the border with the Central African Republic. Now, Chad is quite a, a difficult place to live in, and I want to give you some background about, about that. An extremely impoverished country located in the heart of French-speaking Africa, the northern two-thirds of the country is the Sahara Desert. So right there you get a feeling this is not an easy place for anyone to survive in. An extremely impoverished country. The average person can expect to live to about age 47. Half the population is age 17 or younger. Only one in four people know how to read. The average family survives on about $160 a month. That's about the equivalent of a family in North Korea. Now, while it's a very impoverished country 
in terms of finance and in terms of politics and all those sorts of things, it is a, ca- a country very rich in economic, or excuse me, in, in ethnic diversity. Anthropologists tell us that uh, the first people moved into this region about 7,000 years before Christ. Today, with a population of uh, just under 12 million, Chad is home to 141 different people groups. 72 or half of those are on our list of least reached. That means that you can wander around in Chad and find lots of people who have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. 60% of the population are Muslim. About 13.5% are traditional animists. And it was into one of these traditional animist homes that, uh, that Daje was born. We're not quite sure of the whole story, but as a young boy, he, there was a Sunday school started in his village, and he heard the good news of Jesus Christ and became a follower, just as a young boy, to his father's enormous disappointment. In fact, his father was an angry man, a drunken man, and a man who was known to beat his wife and to beat his family. And, and, and one day, as about a 12-year-old boy, Daje said to his father, I'd like to be baptized, and this unleashed a torrent of wrath. The way Daji told me the story, he was out one day in the fields with his mother working, and his mother noticed the father in the distance coming, and she said, Daji, run for your life and never come back. So here's this young boy wearing a pair of shorts, maybe a T-shirt, probably nothing on his feet, escaping for his life. He tells me that by that evening, he finds his way to the top of the tallest hill he can find, and there he is with nothing, looking up at the stars, and he says, God... Uh, I have no father. You'll have to be my father. Well, in Africa, uh, extended families are extremely important. And so Daji was able to take refuge in the home of one of his uncles who agreed to raise him. And he was an industrious young man. Uh, uh, by about age 15, he had built a house with his own hands. Now, this is out of mud brick and, and straw and the sorts of materials that they use there. But obviously, this is a pretty industrious young guy. Uh, by age 16, from what I was told, he made his way up northwest into the country of Nigeria. And it was there that he uh, attached himself to a construction crew. By age 18, he's the foreman of the crew and now he's beginning to gain some status in society making a little bit of a name for himself but he hears about lots of troubles back home because chad is engulfed in civil war if you know anything about the history of africa it was colonized primarily by the europeans and after world war ii they just sort of carved up these countries not really respecting a whole lot of tribal and ethnic lines and and that's created a lot of the problems we have in africa today but the muslim north with the christian animist south And uh, there's this brutal uh, dictator, a Muslim dictator responsible, we believe, for about 40,000 civilian deaths. And he's oppressing the South. And Daje joins the forces in the South sort of in rebellion against this. And it's during that time that he uh, meets his uh, wife, uh, the woman who would become his uh, wife. uh, But, you know, I got a little bit ahead of myself, and so let me go back, because you guys might be filling in some notes there. As we think about Daje's story, we think about a man who, uh, as 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 he cries out to God, and as he makes his break with his family... He realizes that uh, following Jesus Christ often means reor- reordering even our most intimate priorities. 
I love the way that uh, Jesus put it. You can read that with me on the screen. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who relentlessly pursue God and his heart for the nations, well, they're willing to put Jesus in the place that he deserves. And so as a young man, he's learning this priority. So he moves up into Nigeria, gets some skills there, comes back and joins, uh, somehow gets caught up in this, uh, in this civil war that's going on. He, he meets the woman who will become his wife. We're not sure of all the circumstances there. I was never able to get the story straight. But apparently there's some kind of sin in this whole picture. And even though they're married, they come under the discipline of their church. And now he's at a crossroads. He has to decide, am I going to submit to what the Word of God and to what my church leaders say, or will I just be, continue to be rebellious? And so he and his wife, Christine, choose to submit themselves uh, to the church. They confess their sin. And uh, that really does bring us, I think, to another important aspect of what it means uh, as a follower of Jesus Christ to be relentless. Because relentless does not mean that we are perfect. Relentless does not equal perfection. John wrote about that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, those who relentlessly pursue God and His heart for the nations, they're not fundamentally different or better than the rest of us. They know their need of grace and forgiveness. They learn to pick themselves up after failure and move on. And so, Daji and Christine, they make this commitment. They're going to submit. They're going to follow Christ. They're going to be restored into communion with the church. They're going to see what God leads them to next. Well, these southern forces are brutally repressed, and it was probably to escape retaliation from the dictator from the north that Daji takes his wife and young family, and they escape now to the west, to the country of Cameroon, and there he starts his own business, and soon he's prospering because he's a pretty sharp uh, young man. Things settle down back in Chad. The church gets wind of this one of their own who's prospering over there. He's a construction supervisor. He's got his own construction business. He's doing well. They invite him to come back because they think we need a businessman here. We need a man with the construction abilities and somebody who can help us sort of figure out how to rebuild after the disaster of this war. And so Daje, uh, he, he's willing to move back. But you know, he has a bigger heart than just to do the work with his hands that he's so capable of doing. He wants to do more than simply make money. He doesn't quite know what it is yet. But he he knows that whatever God is calling him to do, it's got something to do with God's heart for the nations. Now this is a time when uh, in African society, and we still have some of the carryover this today, where, uh, where it's pretty tough for those who are considered laymen to be able to break in and learn and grow and, and, and get really involved in leadership of the church. It's something unfortunate, but something that's culturally bound. And little by little, uh, we're seeing the gospel transform that. But at this point, there's a pretty big gulf between those who are willing to be full-time pastors and everyone else. So there's not a lot of options for his training. But some people see his potential. In fact, they think that Daje is so sharp that they, that they actually create a special layman's training school where he and a few others can spend three months in intensive Bible study, but then nine months out 
doing his business, caring for his family, but also learning to evangelize and to lead people to Jesus Christ in the villages there in southern Chad. So that's what he does. It's not a, it's not a great thing, you know, but, but it's at, least, at least it's the next thing that God's opened up for him to do. He's really traditional. He takes one of his trucks and he finds a church choir willing to load on the back of it and they would drive out to these small villages and everybody would start to sing. And of course, it's not only the best show in town, it's the only show in town, okay? There's nothing else happening. And as people would gather around, then he'd grab his Bible and he'd start to talk to them about the story of Jesus Christ. So he was faithful in those things that God had laid before him. And it really takes me... I think, to another important aspect. So here's Dajay with his wife. He now has his certification. He's now got permission from the church to be able to be uh, going out and, and ministering in this way. And, 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 and you know, being relentless, I think, really begins by being faithful in the little things. Jesus had said that years before. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest in much. You know, we might have a great desire to serve God, but it's not going to be like flipping a switch where one day we're saying, God, use me, and the next day the impact of our lives is just enormous. It's a process. And Dodge is learning this and he's growing through it. And for the next eight years, he's juggling this balance, this tension between family, between the business that's growing and prospering, and his desire to be out also ministering to people, and he's just learning to, to trust God and, and, and to be able to move forward. But all that takes a pretty radical change in the year 1998. Dajay had been invited to, uh, to go to the United States to, uh, to receive some special small business training. So he's excited about his first trip to North America. He's never traveled that far from home before. So he joins up with a, with a few pastors that are going to France to a chateau, a retreat center that we have in southern France. They're going to be getting some training, and they're taking him along at least for the first part of his journey until someone's free then to accompany him over to the United States. And a rather remarkable thing happens because here's this guy uh, at the chateau, at the retreat center, waiting for his ride, you could say, to the U.S. two weeks later. And these pastors are invited to this intense training. And our missionary staff are in front of the room uh, beginning to train about, about the church and the glory of the church of Jesus Christ and how to see this spread around the world. And they're all saying, well, where's this guy named Dajay? Well, he's outside. We'll invite him to come in here. Well, no, he's a layman. And we're pastors, and we can't mix the pastors and the layman. That just seems a little strong, doesn't it? This is a hierarchical society, and, and we don't want to be judgmental too quickly for them. But, uh, but the missionary, Tom Julian, some of you know him. He's my predecessor. He says, no, we're not going to do this. You've got to invite this man in here. And as he, as he sits there at this chateau, as he has the opportunity to, uh, to be exposed in a fresh way to the way in which the Spirit of God empowers all believers, mobilizes us all to send us out and to, and to fulfill the mission that He's given to us, this becomes a pivotal point and transforms His perspective in His life. Well, I love this little picture that they took because Dodge is here on the right-hand side. Doesn't he sort of look like an afterthought in the picture? We're ready to take our shot. Oh, maybe we ought to invite Dodge to come in because there's still this kind of divide between those who are considered to be the pastors and those who are the rest. 
But you know, Daji returned from that trip a transformed man. He had a vision from God. He understood the role now that God had called him to fulfill. I first met him in the year 2000. My first trip to Africa, my first trip to Chad, I mean, that's a whole a series of stories I could share with you there. But one of the most remarkable is when Daji on a Sunday morning said, I want to take you to the first Sunday of a new church that we just started. We've been evangelizing, leading people to Christ, discipling them, even helping them to begin to form uh, groups together. But this Sunday is our first Sunday to bring them all together, and I want you to preach. Now that's an experience as I preach in English and someone translates it to French and someone else to Laka and then I forget where I am because by the time we're this far, you know, I'm not even sure. So somehow we got through that. No one today remembers, I don't even remember what the topic was I talked on, but something happened at the end of that message that was absolutely remarkable. As I concluded there, this young girl came up to me and she handed me these four stalks of guinea corn. I don't really understand the culture. I don't have a handle on the language. I'm not sure what's happening here. I'm wondering, is this my honorarium? You know, because I spoke at this church and they're saying thank you. No, Daji says, this is a symbolic moment for us as a new church uh, because it symbolizes our commitment to be a part of a movement to take the good news of Jesus Christ to four countries that surround Chad. I said, what? Yeah, it's our commitment to take the gospel to these four countries. I looked at this young girl who had given the gift to me. Tattered dress, no shoes. I looked at the people around there, most of them wondering what they're going to eat that day. Looked at the children playing in the dirt. No toys, barely any clothes. But something about their new passion for Jesus Christ connected to a vision of a man of God, and they're saying, what we've been given, we've got to share. Four countries. You can see those countries illustrated on this map. Uh, They are the countries of Cameroon, Nigeria, Libya, and Sudan. Wow. Relentless. What does it mean to be relentless? It was a God-sized strategy 2,000 years ago that Jesus Christ spoke to 11 provincial men who had never seen the world, but He looked at him and said, okay, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. This relentless, this, this relentless pursuit of God uh, leads us then to, to a, uh, embracing a God-sized strategy. Those who relentlessly pursue God in His heart for the nations, they understand that whatever God's will is for my individual life, it's going to contribute to the big will, the big one. Jesus has no other plan. It's all about making disciples of the nations. I've watched uh, Dodgy over the past 10 years, and I've learned so much from him. I want to share those, a few of those things with you uh, this morning. He understood that, that a God-sized vision, you're not going to be able to accomplish that alone. You've got to do it with other people. Whatever God is willing me to do, it's going to be a part of His big will, but it's going to be something we do uh, in team. So, so as he returned from the chateau in southern France, he took his own money and he built his own chateau. That's what this is. And he created a training 
institute uh, where he thought, how can I touch the greatest number of people in the shortest amount of time possible? It's a remarkable uh, plan called the Summer uh, Institute of, of, uh, of Evangelism where he'll gather together uh, men for 10 weeks of training and then send them out for 10 months of ministry. You're allowed back in for the next year if you've planted at least one church. In 1998, there were 78 Grace Brethren churches. That's the name of our global movement. There were 78 Grace Brethren churches in Chad. At last count, there were 500 churches and church plants. So he's uh, creating this thing. He understands he's not going to be able to uh, achieve this alone. In, uh, in May of 2009, uh, I had the privilege of uh, sitting outside of this chateau with all of its humble circumstances and surroundings. And Daji uh, laid out a map for me on the ground in which he had drawn a picture of all the villages of southern Chad and so many of them places where the, the name of Jesus Christ has never even been heard. And he laid out his strategy for me. He said, here's what we're doing. And it's not just a future dream. It's really what's happening. He said, we're, gonna, we're, we're planting four strong lines of churches across southern Chad to halt the advance of Islam because they're moving down as aggressively as they can. And so he laid out the, this strategy for me and, and asked us how we could help him then in coming behind the church planting to establish medical clinics and schools so that there's some infrastructure for the church of Jesus Christ to begin to prosper and transform that part of the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a holistic gospel. It transforms souls. It it ministers to bodies. it, It cares for the entire person. And he understood that. Now, Daji, he was a man of prayer. Uh, you remember that uh, earlier I talked to you about, uh, about those four stalks of guinea corn, and, and I mentioned the countries that they represent. And, and so it was in uh, 2006, he was ready to begin to explore uh, the options for extending the church into the country of Nigeria. So he took a few of his daughters and he moved to Nigeria. He wanted to spend three months there learning English better and surveying the spiritual need. He told me, Dave, the people's hearts were so hard they wanted to know nothing about the Bible and about Jesus Christ. And he said, in my desperation, I called out to God. I began to pray intensely. And I met a young woman uh, who for 13 years had been unable to bear a son. In African society, the value of the woman is so often attached to her ability to produce especially sons. That's true in so much of the world. And so you can imagine the plight of this woman who just really has no place in home and in society. She's barren. And he says, I'm going to pray for you. A year later, uh, he returns and uh, he's introduced to her baby boy who had just been born. Uh, And this visible demonstration of an answer to prayer to a sovereign God opened doors that could not have been opened in any other way. Today we have 15 or 10 churches and 9 church plants in Nigeria. Not because of any clever strategy. Not because of any uh, fancy infusion of, of, of capital from the outside. Just a man who went there and simply believed in a God of prayer and the doors have opened up. Daji was a man who believed that God answers prayer. Well, another one of those countries uh, here is the country of Cameroon. 
Uh, in 2007, Daji uh, traveled to Cameroon. We've had churches in Cameroon for some time. It's a small, struggling group of churches. Uh, most of them are immigrants that have moved over in search of work from the Central African Republic or from Chad. And uh, so they're sort of the bottom rung of society, like immigrants often are as they get established. And uh, not a whole lot of growth, but just sort of uh, closed into their own group. And, and Daji began to say, but what about reaching the Cameroonians for Jesus Christ? Well, you don't understand, Daji. They don't like us. They don't want us here. They don't appreciate us. They want us to go home. They think that we're taking their jobs from them. He says, but don't you think God's placed you here for a purpose? God doesn't move people around just on a whim. And he began to create in them uh, an understanding and a passion to be able to, uh, to reach out uh, to their neighbors. So he, he gathered a few of the sharpest young men. He took them back to his summer school of evangelism at that little chateau that I showed you a few moments ago and trained them. And today, 46 churches and 16 church plants in the country of Cameroon. Cameroon, that was that second stalk of Guinea corn. Adaji, uh, while being a man of prayer and, and, and embracing a God-sized strategy and all those cool things we've said about him, uh, he was not a man who, uh, who would presume about, upon God. He, he knew that uh, to, be, to, to do the work that God's called us to do, we've got to work, we've got to be disciplined, we have to prepare ourselves. And that's illustrated so well when in 2008 he sets off now on a really difficult journey uh, to cross all of southern Chad and to begin to investigate the possibility of moving in to Sudan. You can see uh, from this picture just some of the difficulties, even in the journey. So many kilometers by truck and then going on by motorcycle. He sent me a picture of his hands just to show you know, how rough this journey was. And finally, an ox cart to be able to make it you know, into Sudan and not quite sure what they're going to discover there. But what they find are a group of Muslims who are tired of the oppression of Islam. They're, they're African Muslims and the Arabic Muslims really treating them as, as a lower class of members of society. And he discovers their openness and actually receives an invitation to send workers into Sudan to work among the Muslims who want to know more about Jesus Christ. Now, while he believes God answers prayer, as I said, he refuses to presume on God. He, know, he knows that uh, the evangelists are going to have to, uh, they're going to have to be well prepared to be able to survive in a hostile region like Sudan. And so he creates this uh, special training where they all learn to dress in Muslim garb. They learn to eat the food of Sudan. He's got his own cross-cultural training institute that he's put together. And he understands that not only do they have to understand language and culture as they move into this uh, foreign country, this neighboring country, but they're also going to need some visible means of support. And so some of the men learn how to be nurses and some uh, bricklayers and some of them learn to be metal workers. And, and, and so pretty soon, 2009, uh, we're seeing seven Chadian families deploying to the, Chad, to the Chadian Sudanese border to begin evangelizing. Wives and children, the whole group. I remember the emotional moment when I met some of these men and I shook their hands and I prayed for them and I thought, you know what, these guys are going into the heart of what is most difficult in the world and it's, it's unlikely I'm ever going to see them again in this life. But that's where they are. We're always wondering from week to week what kind of news might finally make its way out of this team of 14 who are working in a very hostile environment 
Last week, I got the most amazing picture, probably taken on someone's cell phone. Uh, oh, by the way, this is the, uh, these are the kinds of uh, projects they do. This is a garden where churches actually plant a special missionary garden and raise money because he believes that Chadian missionaries need to be supported by Chadian funds. But, uh, but here's the picture that I got. Here is the first of eight Muslim belie- new believers in Jesus Christ who were just baptized ten days ago. Seven men and one woman. Muslim background believers, we call them, who uh, this morning, before, long before any of us would have gotten up, would have met together to worship Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, I don't think I mentioned this. The region that they're working in, you've heard of this a whole lot. It's called Darfur. Darfur. Now I want to go back to May of 2008, to this moment in which uh, Daji was spreading out the map under the trees and explaining to me his strategy. And what I didn't share with you was how uh, after he had explained the strategy for southern Chad, he began to draw way off the map. And I, wasn't, I was confused as to what he was drawing. And he said, you don't understand uh, African geography. Uh, I'm outlining for you the countries to the north, the countries of Libya and Egypt. Because that's where we've got to go next. That's where we've got to go next. And we began to strategize together. And he said, I'm going to need your help, Dave, for this one. Because to prepare men to go into Libya and to go into Egypt, we're not supposed to do that on our own. We're going to have to partner together. And so we began to plan as to how we could help facilitate that. Last time that I saw uh, Dajay was, uh, was at that time. Uh, I was heading back to the States, and, and he was uh, getting ready to make his first investigative trip into Libya. His uh, plan was to travel north with his right-hand man, a guy named Pascal, and they're down in southern Chad. And so they've got to make the long trip up to uh, N'Djamena, which is the capital city, to gain a visa so that the two of them can fly across the Sahara Desert and into southern uh, Libya to be able to investigate the openness of southern Libya uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they get there, they meet uh, uh, an obstacle they didn't anticipate, and that is government offices on strike and, and the impossibility of, it, of, of getting this visa that they needed. But one government official said, if you're willing to travel across the Sahara Desert north up into this city called Faya Largo, uh, they will give you a visa there. So what else are we going to do? God's calling us up uh, to Libya. The next day, they book passage on one of uh, these uh, Toyota uh, buses, uh, a Toyota Hilux, about 15 people on it, and they begin to make the five-day journey north across the Sahara. Everybody's got 25 liters. That's about six, six and a half gallons of water to last the trip. They mainly travel at night because the temperature is about 130, 140 degrees during the day. And after five days, exhausted, they finally come to Faya, only to discover they had been lied to and it's impossible to get the visa that they were seeking. So no other choice except to head south. They book passage on the same Toyota Hilux and they're heading out of town. They're only out of town just a few kilometers when the thing breaks down and the driver leaves them there in the desert and somehow the vehicle limps its way back uh, for some parts and there they are sort of exposed to the desert during the hot part of the day. The driver returns about 4 uh, p.m. and they get loaded again on this uh, vehicle and they begin to head south and 
a little farther out, it breaks down again. Fortunately, somebody's cell phone gets a signal, and so they send a, a car out from Faya that picks them up and brings them back in. It takes them a couple of days to recuperate their strength, but uh, now it's time to try to head south again. Now they book uh, passage on a Toyota Land Cruiser. They've got, they're, now they're inside. They're going to have a little air conditioning. Things are going to be a little easier as they try to make this five-day trip south again. A hundred or so kilometers out, that breaks a rear axle. And now they look at one another and say, this is it. I mean, we're just not going to survive this. The water is uh, soon uh, used up. I guess the day started out just a little bit better. You can kind of watch Daje as the day goes on. First, uh, they're sharing a little water with some camels, and then uh, I guess they're figuring they better hang on to it for themselves. And by the end of, of this day, at least, with really no shade, you can see how it's taking its toll on him. They're there. They're stranded. One of these uh, trucks that are so common in Africa comes by, and they're willing to make room on the top of it for Daje and his companion uh, to be able to, to, to be up there. And from the way the story is told to me, for the next 24 hours, they're making this trip uh, through the desert, totally exposed. And, and uh, his friend is spoon-feeding uh, water to Daje. They finally get him to a town we send up an airplane to evacuate him and get him to a hospital where he hangs on for about three days and then he dies. This is less than a year ago. He's buried. You know, those who relentlessly pursue Jesus Christ and His passion for the world are those who are willing to pay a price for this, even when that price costs them what seems most valuable to us in this life. Hebrews says it's so great. You can follow along as I read. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us let us fix our eyes on jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of god this willingness to follow in the footsteps of jesus christ who was willing to lay it all down and as a result has been glorified in an amazing way by his father. A few months before these circumstances that finally took uh, Daje home, uh, he had written, uh, written us a letter, and, and here's what he had said. He said, I'm convinced of this. Each missionary is being, being sent is signing his death sentence. He must have a very close relationship with God because his days are numbered. This was written in January of last year. He passed away in late April. Those with a half-hearted commitment cannot do the work. And of course, by now you've figured it out, right? You've connected the dots. Uh, Libya was the fourth stalk of guinea corn. Now we can ask ourselves questions like, why? You know, we do that in, in front of these circumstances that are so so hard for us to explain. We can ask the why question. 
But men and women, oftentimes in this life, the why question never gets answered. God does not seem real excited about telling us why for many things that we face. And I think a far better question is, now what? Now what? I believe that from time to time, God raises up some very unique individuals to parade in front of us what relentless looks like. And more often than not, I've discovered, He takes them home long before we think it's appropriate because His real plan all along is to confound the strong and the wise by using ordinary people like you and me. Men and women like Daje show what is possible when we make the choices, the simple daily choices, to be obedient and to follow Jesus Christ. And as I reflect on what, what's such an enormous loss for us, I've, I come to the conclusion that, that, that Daje's role was to create space. And now our role is to fill it. What we need now are dozens of men and women uh, who, who, who will partner with this movement. You see, this guy showed the way. He made things possible that seemed impossible to most people ten years ago. And then God has taken him aside and looked at us and said, now it's your turn. Thank you, Dajay. Thank you for breaking through to make room for hundreds of chatty and laymen to really realize their full potential in Jesus Christ. They're serving as evangelists and church planters and they're starting businesses. They're learning how to do medicine. Thank you, Daji, for, for showing us real concrete ways that we can partner with this movement. This is the most remarkable thing I've seen in the world and I've been a lot of places. Daji, your sacrifice created room for a new generation of health professionals and educators and cross-cultural specialists and businessmen and women to generate resources and to start micro-business and more. I really believe this, that, that, that a guy like Daji, who models what relentless means, God uses people like him to create space for men and women like you and me. Are you connected to what God is doing? Are we willing to follow in the path of some remarkable people who really learned what it meant to be relentless? Let's pray. Almighty God, there really are few words to say right now except thank you for giving him to us that's easy to say. What's a lot harder to say is thank you for taking him from us. Because you are a sovereign God who's orchestrating something truly amazing in our lifetime. And we've caught a glimpse of it through the life of a young boy whose first decision was to put Jesus Christ even in front of his family. Who made some mistakes along the way. 
who learn to be faithful in little things, who allowed you to grip his heart with a God-sized strategy that no single person could ever, ever fulfill. And who even in his death still speaks to us today. Show us how we need to respond to become that kind of relentless man and woman in the pursuit of the will of Christ to lead the nations to the worship of the true God. We pray these things in the name of the one who was the most relentless of all, Jesus Christ. Amen.